Thank you, Austin. Good morning again. Uh, it's, I'm Tony. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a pleasure to be able to bring the message today as we continue in 1 Samuel. So uh, last week, Drew talked about how excited he was about that passage, probably because it had this, this great story of Jonathan. And um, I, I was excited about this passage because I think, um, I think it's kind of funny, or at least parts of it are. And uh, kind of cringy, so I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer passage that we're going to read, and then what we're going to do is we're going to read it all together, and then uh, we're going to go back um, and look at certain portions of it, so it would be, be helpful to have it handy. So if you have it in your worship folder or in your Bible, right now it's going to be behind me on the screen, uh, but uh, it won't be like that during the sermon. So uh, if you want to take a second and get it while I start reading. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, do not go from among the uh, Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed and among uh, from among the uh, Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was very angry, or Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told, uh, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Saul came, or Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best things to uh, best, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then Samuel said, on the back, if you're using the worship folder, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the way of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the word of the Lord. You say it with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So... I don't know if anybody remembers this, but in the early 90s, a movie came out called King Ralph. Any chance anybody remembers it? All right, yeah. So it was 30 years ago, and it's the story of Ralph, who's just this regular American guy. All of the royal family in England suddenly die, and he is the next in line for the throne. So all of a sudden, Ralph becomes king. It's one of these rags-to-riches stories. And, and they've made movies about this all the time. You know, they have Mr. Deeds, which was an Adam Sandler movie, where he finds out he's the heir of a billionaire. And there's Princess Diaries that came out later, where this common American girl finds out that she's a princess. And, and there's something about these rags-to-riches stories that, that fascinate us and get us excited. Uh, they didn't get me too excited, though, because I'm the youngest of three children. And so if we are distantly related to royal family, and they all die, then my brother gets to be king. That's less exciting to me, you know? I have an older sister too, but a lot of times it goes through the male's heirs, so you know? So there he is, John gets to be king, and Tony doesn't. <laughs> but let's just say that John, being the good older brother that he is, and recognizing my talents and all that, decided to say, he said, you know what, I am not going to be king, and instead, you, Tony, you get it, you get to become king, and now I am king. Long live the king, right? How would you expect me to relate to my brother after that? I mean, you'd expect me to be pretty grateful, right? Like, if there's a foreign policy decision and he calls, I should at least, like, accept the call, Right? I mean, maybe, maybe I should build a statue for him, right? A, a monument to him and his generosity. Maybe name a, a town after him. Johnville? John Haven? You know, I don't know. Just spitballing here. 
I mean, you would expect something, right? You would expect me to be, to be always excited about the graciousness of my brother. And that's what we would expect from Saul. That Saul would have been grateful to God for making him king. That that's a big deal. Now, Saul isn't exactly rags to riches. He did come from a wealthy family. But there's a big difference, I'm told, from being wealthy and being king. And so, so Saul should still have been very grateful. He should, have, he should have thought about the king, loved the king. But what we're going to see is this, that Saul was not grateful to God for making him king. His profound ungratefulness led to his dis- disobedience, which then led to his downfall. But, but as we go through it, as we, we look through it again, uh, we shouldn't just think about Saul. That's easy. To, to see Saul and to see, uh, here's the bozo, did everything wrong. But we also should think about ourselves. See, the story of Saul was written down and it was told so that people would learn how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to relate to God. And so that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to go through, look at Saul's story, and then check in with ourselves and in our hearts to see how, I, how we might be living like Saul and how we may need to repent. And we're going to see that Saul acted like he was worthy when it was God who was worthy. And we can fall into that trap of doing the same thing. So we're going to look back at the passage. So if you have it, you might want to pull it back out, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel what, what he did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Uh, So now that that part's a bit difficult, so let's just talk about it a second. There's there's a whole background to this. So if you remember where we are with Saul, right, in the story, God came and he he chose Abraham to be the people of God. His descendants were going to be the people of God. And so Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. They went into Egypt, they became slaves. Moses led them out of Egypt. They wandered for 40 years before going into the promised land where they were ruled by judges. And then finally they demanded a king and they got Saul. So that's that's where we are. But if we back it up a little bit, while they were in the wilderness with Moses, at one point the Amalekites come out and they start attacking the people in the back and then they have a big battle with the Israelites. If you grew up in church, you may remember the story where there was a battle going on and Moses had to hold up his staff and it got like real heavy. And as long as he held up his staff, the Israelites were winning. And when they lose, when he would lower it, they would start losing. So people had to come and hold his arms up. So if you remember that story, that was the Amalekites that they were fighting. So they win. They defeat the Amalekites. Things go well. And so Deuteronomy, God tells the people of Israel that once they get in, once they settle the land, that they're supposed to go back and destroy the Amalekites. And today is that day. That's what he's calling them to do. But we have to address the elephant in the room, uh, which is the command to go and to kill everyone. And fortunately, we don't have time to really delve deep into this. Um, So we're just going to try to hit a couple of points quickly, uh, because that's not the main point that, uh, of the passage today. 
Uh, but the first thing that we have to see is, is it's hard to imagine God, you know, wanting the destruction of individuals based on the people group. But, but we as Americans tend to be highly individualistic. Uh, but that wasn't true for the rest of the world. It's not wasn't true in history. And so they saw themselves as a group and had a, a very much stronger group identity than we, we typically have. And what we see in the Bible is that God regularly deals with people in their groups. He deals with their families. He deals with, with nations as far as the blessings and the curses as a whole. And so, so that's one of the normal things that we see in the Old Testament. And second, what we need to see is that God is judging them for their sin. So in, in attacking Israel, the Amalekites, they were rejecting God, and they were, they were being disrespectful. They, were, didn't fear, fear, they didn't fear God. So God is bringing judgment on them. And we know that in the end, when Jesus comes back, that there's going to be a final judgment. So God, who is the maker of heavens and earth, who all of us live because he allows us to live, uh, if he wants to bring judgment earlier, that's up to him. But the other thing that we need to see is that God was patient with them, and he gave them time to repent. So other nations around, they noticed that God was blessing the Israelites. And so, so it didn't always spur them on to repentance, but they, they had a chance to see that, to realize what was going on, and to repent. And that's why we have Jeremiah, the passage from Jeremiah, in your worship folder as the reading of the law. In verse 7 and 8, it says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent to the disaster that I intended to do to it. So God, God had forgiveness available to them. I mean, when they saw the Kenites leaving, that, that was their last moment. Maybe they could have turned, but they didn't. And so... So that's what we see, that, that God is the one who brings judgment, he offers forgiveness, but they didn't take him up on that. So if this is something that's still really agitating you, you know, we could talk about it after the sermon if you want to come up, or you can call Jonathan Winfrey later in the week. He's, he's smarter than me anyway. So, But that wasn't the main issue of the, the passage. So going back to verse 1, it says this, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. And so Samuel is reminding Saul that he has an obligation to God. God is the one who made him king. He's the one who rose, raised him up. And so now he needs to obey God, and he needs to do what God commanded. God has a right to command Saul, and Saul should joyfully obey. He should have obeyed with gratitude. What we're going to see is that Paul, Saul doesn't do that. He only partially obeys, and he shows that he isn't really all that grateful either. So let's pause, check in with ourselves. I mean, this is going to be a sermon on obedience. So how, how does it feel when you read passages about obedience? We like to talk about grace and forgiveness, which is good. We need to talk about that. That's, that's a big deal. But we also need to think about how we should respond to that grace and mercy and love, right? The, God is gracious to us, so how do we respond to that? In fact, Jesus says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience is important in the Christian life. It's important because it is the only reasonable response to God's 
grace and mercy and love to us. So let's pause and consider what God has done for us, right? The gospel is good news, but it's good news because there was bad news. What was the bad news? The bad news is that we were all sinners. We we were all uh, disobedient to God. We were all in rebellion against God. And because of that, and because he's the judge, he would have been right to punish us and right to judge us. So we're sinners and we're under condemnation for God. And, and there's nothing we can do to change it. We can't, do too, we can't do enough good to make it work. We can't do more good deeds than bad deeds. That's not how it works. So we were stuck. We were stuck as sinners under God's condemnation. That's where we were. But God loved us. So he sent Jesus to come from heaven fully God, fully man, live a perfect life, and to go on the cross and to take our punishment on the cross. What we deserved, he took. And he gives us his righteousness. He, he died, he was buried, he rose again, defeating the power of sin, ascended to heaven, and now praying for us. He sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to adopt us as his children. And so we go from being sinners condemned to adopted children. Some of this was hit home for me when I went to, when I lived in Nicaragua, there's a volcano there, and you can go up, and you can look down, and you can see the lava, like, boiling up, and it struck me. The first time I did that, because I was raised in church, right? One of the imagery we have of hell is the lake of fire, and that's what you see, lake of fire, and it hit me. Like, that's, that's what I deserved, but what do I get? Streets of gold. Right? I get mansions prepared for me. Right? I don't get that. I get this. It's this huge reversal of fortune. Right? It's the rags to riches story. It's better than my brother letting me become king. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than Saul becoming king. So how are we supposed to respond to that? When he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And you think about lake of fire, streets of gold. They're like, of course. What else would we do? should be grateful for what God has done. So God gives us a command. And he gave Saul a command. And it was a difficult one for us to understand, but it was a command nonetheless. So Saul goes out and he destroys the Amalekites. But look at verse 9. I want you to pull it out so you can read along with this. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the, what's the word? And the best, say it, the best of the sheep, of the oxen, of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was what? What does it say? All that was despised and worthless. They devoted to destruction. So Saul kept what? What did he keep? The best. And what did he give to God? Despised and worthless. How's that for gratitude? How's that for gratefulness? Right? That's not what God said to do. You know, when it comes to the killing of the sheep and the oxen, you know, killing them in, in the field was essentially a form of sacrifice. That's what it was meant to be. And that is what God wanted him to do. But they gave to God the worst, despised and worthless, and they kept the best for themselves. So God made Saul king. 
Then he gave him victory after victory. And then Saul pays him back by giving God, what was the two words? What did he give him? Despised and worthless. He gave God the worst, but he kept for himself the best. Saul acted as, as if Saul was the one who was worthy and not that God was the one who was worthy. And we can be like Saul too. We have areas in our lives that we hold back from God. We, we repent, we go to him, but yeah, we, we keep certain, certain parts of our lives to ourselves. We don't want to always give him the best. Sometimes we think obedience is going to be boring or we think that our sin is too precious to us. So we don't want to Give it to him. So that's what you got to ask. What's the area in your life that you're holding back from God? What's the, the little sin, your little pet sin? In Spanish, you could call it a pecadito. A little sin that's kind of cute that you keep for yourself. And we can have them. And what's interesting is we can define anything as a little sin. I mean, we have the capability of doing that. You know? So it's just... Just a little gossip, a little slander, a little pornography, just a little cheating on my spouse, right? We have the ability to make anything a pecadito. We keep the sheep, the best for us. We give God what's worthless and despised. So God gave, Saul gave God the worst, kept the best for himself. And then we start, again, to the part that I really like in verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Look at that. Saul set up a monument for himself. God gave him the victory. I'm awesome. Right? How many of you guys have seen The Office? Because this is what it reminds me of. In the very first episode of The Office, if you haven't seen it, there's his boss, Michael, and he's clueless. And so he's talking to the camera about how great of a boss he is. And he shows them his mug. Anybody knows what the mug says? World's best boss. And then he says where he got it. Anybody remember where he got it? He bought it for himself. He says, world's best boss. I bought it at Spencer Gifts. That's what he says. That's what Saul's doing, right? He's setting up a monument to himself. He's walking around with his world's best boss mug, completely clueless at who really gave him the victory. I'm the best in the world. That's what he's doing. God made Saul king. God told Saul to go destroy the Amalekites. God gave Saul the victory. And the result? World's best boss. And Saul saying, I'm the one worthy of praise, not the generous God who is worthy of praise. He gave God the worst, kept the best for himself, and then built a monument to himself. You can feel the cringiness of that. So here's the deal. What we see is that even though he's doing that, really Saul was actually very insecure. When he gets confronted by Samuel, what we see later is that he actually blames the people. He's afraid of them. 
And so if he's the king worthy of the monument, why is he also so insecure? It's because the life of ungratefulness is an insecure life. Because we build monuments to ourselves, trying to comfort ourselves, saying that we're really worthy, right? That we're okay, that we're worth it. But we really understand deep down that we're not. So we get insecure. We buy ourselves the world's best boss mug, and it can be over anything. Maybe you think you're particularly good looking, world's best boss, right? You think your family's so well-behaved, your kids are so awesome, right? World's best boss. You're, you're the smartest guy in the room. You're super successful. You're amazing. But in spite of all that, oftentimes we walk around very insecure because we try to convince ourselves that we're worthy, but we're not. And as we're working that out, and as we're trying to do that, what we start to think is that God is kind of lucky to have us. And we lose sight of God's graciousness towards us. We're we're no longer really amazed at God's grace. The good news isn't all that good because the bad news wasn't really all that bad, right? So so I I didn't really deserve all that much punishment. So God's grace is, is kind of smaller to me. So we build the monuments, just like Saul did. So what's a monument that you build in your life? to comfort you in your insecurity, to prove to yourself that you're really not that bad. What's your world's best boss mug? It'd be really kind of funny if, for some of you, it was that you're the world's best boss. That would be great. So we have inflated egos, sense of our own self-righteousness, and it dulls our, our gratefulness. We say, he's not worthy, I'm worthy. And then now look at verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. It's great. I mean, he's so self-confident or self-deluded or something, right? Because then what does Samuel say? This is my, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So you can picture it, right? Here's Saul with all his army surprised that Samuel shows up. Probably wanted to get rid of the sheep before then, right? Here comes Saul. Hey, Saul, I did it all. Aren't I great? You should see my monument. And Samuel says then what are all the sheep, right? Saul's up here boasting, and there's sheep behind him. He's probably trying to, like, block Samuel's view. Don't look at this. I did everything. But what about the sheep? And it's easy to laugh at Saul for this. What was he thinking? But that's the Holy Spirit sometimes working in us, too, We go to God, look, God, I've done everything. And meanwhile, the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, but what about this? What about the way when your spouse leaves, you run to the Internet? What about the way that you're you're mean to people or you think mean things about them, you plan? What about how you lack any generosity in your life? What, What about these things? It's 
It's a lot more fun when we're laughing at Saul and Samuel's calling him out. But the Holy Spirit works in our hearts too. And he points out our areas of blindness and our excuses because we come up with the greatest excuses. I mean, Saul did. What does Saul say? I was, I was taking him to sacrifice him. That's what he says. He says, but the people took of the spoil and sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's not true. We know because the Lord saw his heart and told it to Samuel. It's not true. We come up with excuses. We rationalize our sin. And we can get really, we can get really creative about it. When I was in high school, I was president of the Bible club, you know, because I was that cool. <laughs> and, uh, and there were times, because it, it was school, where the kids would be making fun of somebody, right? And I had a choice. I could, uh, you know, I could stick up for them, or I could at least not participate, but uh, sometimes I could be funny and witty. And so I thought, this is, this is no exaggeration, I had this thought, you're going to think this is crazy. This is crazy as Saul. I thought, well... If I join in, everybody will think I'm cool. And if they think I'm cool, they'll think God's cool. Isn't that great? Yeah. I had that thought more than once. Isn't that awesome? We come up with great excuses for our sins. We're blind to them. But then they're behind us, bleeding, right? Lowing. Here's one. Here's one that we use a lot. They all kind of leave to this way, to this. Well, Jesus forgave me, so it's okay. I'm forgiven, so I can do what I want. And that sounds good, because hopefully you are forgiven. But when you look at it a little deeper, you can just see the profound ungratefulness in that. Right? Sure, I commit this sin, worthy of death. But Jesus already died for it, right? Oh, no, it, it's all right, because the wrath I deserved was already paid by Jesus for this. He died for it, so it's cool. It's cool if I keep on doing it. That's rather ungrateful, right? should be, he died for it. I can't believe that. Why would I want to continue? But we come up with excuses, Samuel doesn't have any of it. He doesn't, he doesn't accept the excuses of Saul. And so we see in verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He's comparing obedience to sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that, okay, even if you did want to sacrifice him, that's not the command. That's not what I gave you. You're still being disobedient. I want obedience. 
And he says that disobedience is like divination. Divination was the way that people would use magic to try to manipulate God into doing things or the spirits into doing things for them. It was a man-centered way. It was, it was manipulation. And then he says presumption is like the sin of, oh, I lost my place, like the sin of idolatry. And, and presumption there is kind of like other translations use stubbornness or arrogance or insubordination. It's the idea that you are above God. You don't have to do what he says. You don't have to obey God is brought low and you are high, so you can do what you want. And the idol that Saul was worshiping was himself. He was acting as if, as if he himself was the one who was worthy, as if he won the battle and not God. He was worshiping the idol of himself. He set up the monument to himself. And we do the same thing. We build an idol of ourselves. All the little pecaditos, the world's best boss mugs, they're all symptoms of the same thing, self-worship, where we keep the best for ourselves. And Saul's disobedience and self-worship led to his destruction, and that should cause us to have a sober time of reflection. Because what does your disobedience say about you? Well, you know what it says, one thing it says, says that we need Jesus. You know what's really amazing about Jesus and our ungratefulness? Is that he died for our ungratefulness too. That can be forgiven. You know, if you read Samuel's rebuke of Saul and you get nervous, you know, that, that's great because it reveals that you have needs. And you can turn to Jesus with those needs. The Holy Spirit can work in your heart as you feel weak. You don't need to build your own monuments. And you don't need some cheap, world's best boss mug from Spencer's. That's worthless. Because in Christ, when he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. And it says that he's going to give us crowns. I have a mug when you can have a crown. And you know what we're going to do with those crowns? Anybody know? Yeah, we're going to throw them at Jesus' feet. Why? Because we battle with ungratefulness now. We won't then. And then we're going to see all the goodness, all the reality of what he's really done. I mean, we're going to see the, the change in our fortune that we could have had the lake of fire and said we get streets of gold. Oh, man, then we're just going to get them. We're going to throw them at his feet. Instead of striving, instead of trying to build our own monuments, trying to, to, to do it ourselves, we can trust in God. And remember that our sins are paid for. And focus on that. So we're going to be singing in a moment. So here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the, the time to examine your heart a little bit. And I think in this room there's going to be two types of people, right? So the first is that there are some who are ungrateful because they have never turned from their sins and asked God to forgive them. But holding, holding that to yourselves. And if that's you, then that's rather silly. Because God offers us forgiveness and grace. And where you are unable, where you are insecure, he is able to save you. 
So there's no better time than now, during the next song, to just pray. Ask God to forgive you. Put your trust in him. Confess your sins that you've been trying to do it on your own. Then after that, talk to someone, maybe one of the pastors or the person who brought you, Vicki, and let us know uh, so we can help you with your next steps. But most of us here are believers. And we still sometimes struggle with ungratefulness. We still try to think that we're worthy and he's not worthy. And so we're going to sing a song, and it's all about how worthy God is. And in the chorus it says this, Holy, there is none like you, there is none beside you. Open my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are. And then it goes on. So if you're struggling with unforgiveness today, while we're singing that, while we're singing that chorus, I want you to pray and ask God that he would open your eyes to the wonder that is your salvation, to the glory of your reversal of fortune, and that he would just fill you with the joy and appreciation to his sacrifice that then leads us to obedience. Because he's worthy. We don't have to build monuments to ourselves. We don't have to try to, to, to battle between the insecurity of, of our inability versus, you know, the self-glory we have. We can just admit the reality we need Jesus and rest in his love. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are worthy. And we confess that we're not. And we can oftentimes come up with all sorts of excuses to justify our sins. But you are worthy. And we can be ungrateful. But you died for our ungratefulness. Open up our eyes to the wonder of your salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The promise of the benediction is that as the adopted children of God, even in your ungratefulness, you are loved. That Jesus' blood so bought you, so paid for your sins, that when God thinks about you, it's with joy in his heart and a smile on his face. So adopted children of God, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.